All right, Justin Coaxum, you want to come up here for just a second and talk to me? Justin works at Oracle, and he's our speaker today. He's going to be bringing uh, some of Titus to us, and uh, I think I shocked him a little bit in the process, but uh, is he plug into the universe? Justin's a consultant. He is... Uh, Works with our young adults here, with, along with Phil. He has put in a lot of work over the last five months as part of our transition team. And I am, I've been consistently impressed with the wisdom that God has given Justin. As you can see, he was a wide receiver at one point in his life. And uh, <laughs> a backhanded sorry. statement there. I'm not sure. <laughs> Thinking of different things that I like about him. I was wondering, we played football out here one time at Justin's making moves and like, you played college ball, right? Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, yeah. So you're on my team now. <laughs> so um, what do you do at Oracle? I'm a consultant. He's a, so any, I, t- any, I tell people There's got to be some more impressive title than consultant. Um, I'm a senior regional sales consultant. That's what he is. I tell people okay. about the mystery of software. <laughs> Travels a fair bit, mm-hmm. and uh, so, Rachel, thank you for letting him pour in so much energy around here also. Let's pray for him, okay? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you that your word is rich in Justin, that this didn't start yesterday, his, his parents' investment in his life, and, and faithfulness to you and, uh, for many years. We ask that you draw old and new things out of his soul and out of your word in this whole process. So cover him, Lord. We commit to, to you to be listeners that obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, Mark, for the kind words and the introduction. I feel bad because I don't have a master's degree, which is what Brian Marcioni always gets, you know. He's got all those master's degrees. So if you don't have a master's degree, I'm the speaker for you. If you, team bachelors, where are we we at? He's got the bachelors. C's get degrees. That's my testimony there. So, all right. Well, now that that's out of the way, we've been been in a series going through the book of Titus. And I'm going to wrap that up today. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3. So um, last week, Mark gave us a great summary in Titus on leadership and elders. And then two weeks before that, Brian Marcioni gave us an overview of doctrine and how our belief about God can determine our behavior. So just a, a little bit of background. If you haven't been here before and you haven't been a part of the series, Titus was an understudy of the Apostle Paul. And Titus was overseeing some of the churches that Paul had planted in this area called Crete. So what we're going to be looking at today in Titus 3 is a little bit of the instruction that Paul gives to Titus for the churches there in Crete. Now, two weeks ago, Brian gave a really good sermon on belief and how it determines behavior, and that was from Titus chapter 1. What I like about Titus chapter 1 is it has some very frank words about the people of Crete and the reputation that they developed. Titus 1 talks about how the people of Crete had this reputation of liars, evil beasts, 
and gluttons. So not probably the ideal thing. And that got me thinking, what do people think of Christians in America? And like many things, to get the answer, I went to Google. And I just got on Google and searched Christians. And the first result that comes back on Google, when you type in, why are Christians so, the first and most popular result is, why are Christians so mean? So I didn't, I, I have an easier time believing that after living in New England for six years. I'm from Missouri, so it's a little more of a Bible belt and, and kind of a nice touchy-feely culture. But a lot of you probably can affirm that, right? You have friends, you have neighbors, you have coworkers, and even family members who are like, you're a Christian? Like, aren't they bigoted and homophobic and intolerant and all types of other things? So what we're dealing with here as Christians in America is pretty similar to what the people of Crete were dealing with. We're dealing with a bad reputation. So the question is, how do we reverse that? How do we stem that trend? And to borrow a phrase, how do we make Christianity great again? You know... (laughs) When I say great again, I'm not referring to going back in American history. I'm talking about going back to the Bible, going back to the New Testament and living out some of the values that are there. What if when people got on Google and they searched, the first result that came back was, why are Christians always taking care of orphans and widows? Why are Christians so graceful? Why are Christians always asking to pray for people? So talking about getting back to the Bible, not getting back to some golden age that didn't really exist in American history. But the answer to this question, I think, is found in some of Paul's instructions to Titus in Titus chapter 3. So there's this theme in Titus 3 about uh, good works. And if you haven't read Titus 3, just, just kind of think with me for a minute. What do you think Paul was meaning when he's saying in Titus 3 that people should be devoted to good works? If you're like me, you might jump straight to, oh, he's saying we need more people as full-time missionaries, or we need more people in ministry, or maybe nonprofit or charity work. And those are all awesome things. So if you're doing those, you know, great. That, that, that's really good, and we need certainly more of that. But what's interesting in Titus 3 is the instructions he's giving are more suited towards people like me and probably a lot of you who work full-time jobs, who have kids and have bills to pay and are kind of feel like you're just trying to get through the grind. He's giving instructions to people who are everyday normal people. And we pay, us everyday normal people who are software consultants or accountants or nurses or stay-at-home moms or college students, we'll play a vital role in seeing God's kingdom advanced and in reversing the trend and seeing Christians be known for what's in the Bible and not this reputation we've developed. So what we're going to look at today with these good works, I want us to be careful because as you read through passages like Titus 3, you can kind of see the morals that he's laying out, and you can look at those and say, oh yeah, those are good things that Christians, much less anybody else, should aspire to. What we're going to look at, though, today in Titus 3 is the unique challenge that he's giving to the church about how they can reverse this bad reputation, and we'll also look at what it looks like when the grace of God is what drives our devotion to good works. So, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to focus our time today. If you have your Bibles or your smartphones, open up to Titus 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. It 
Okay. I'm going to read from the NIV. This is what God's word says. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. The first question I want to ask of the text is why. Why in verse 8 is Paul saying that the church should devote themselves to good works or devote themselves to doing what is good? If we look in the text, we'll get that answer very clearly. Verse 8 says that uh, devoting ourselves to good works are profitable and wise for everyone. And if we need more evidence as to why he's saying that, we can look further in verse 14 where Paul also talks about good works providing for the church in times of need. So now the next question is, what's unique about that? Is, are these just moral things that we can do and then move on with our lives? And how does the grace of God drive our devotion to good works? To answer that question, we next need to ask, what? What is Paul saying when he says good works? I have to kind of reprogram my brain because every time I've thought through this, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that he's saying oh, just do good works, do these things that I'm telling you in this text, when actually the text says we should devote ourselves to good works. So now we have to ask the question, what does Paul mean with this word devote? So the Greek, uh, which is the original language of uh, of the passage we're reading, the Greek word for devote has a couple different root meanings of it. One of them, it means to maintain. If you're reading the King James today, you'll see that it says, to maintain good works. Maintain just means like preside or watch over, almost like you would maintain a garden or or plants, which I'm terrible at maintaining. All my plants die. But one one of those root meanings means to maintain. The other root meaning means to stand in proper rank order, almost like a military would have a chain of command and you need to be in the proper order. I think those, those root meanings illustrate a point that Paul is making in this text, that we need to be people who do what's in the text and are practitioners of good work, but we also need to be people who have a proper perspective about our good works and have the proper order as they relate to Jesus. So this reminds me, these, these kind of dual meanings remind me of what Jesus said in Matthew 15:8 when he was referring to the Pharisees. Jesus said that there are these people that honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what might that look like in our context? We just got done 
honoring God with our lips. We just sang some awesome worship songs. That was great. But if I could look into my heart, into your heart, into everybody in here's heart, I might see that some of you are here today because it's what you think your parents would want you to do. Some of you are here because your friends are here. Some of you are here to protect your reputation, and you just don't want to answer questions about not being here, so you come every Sunday, right? So those things aren't necessarily bad, but if Jesus isn't in that equation, then we are in danger of being the people that he described in Matthew 15, 8, people that honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. So now we have to ask the question, how? How do we do, or how do we, see, there it is, how do we devote ourselves to these good works that Paul is describing? And what does it really look like when the grace of God is what's driving our devotion to good works? That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. So there are three things in the text that I think illustrate how we can devote ourselves to these good works that Paul is describing. One is we need to be filled. The second is we need to be focused. And the third is we need to remember why we're doing good works in the first place. I wish for that third point I could come up with something that was B and started with the letter F, and then it could be be filled, be focused, be fabulous or something. But (laughs) when I get to the the third point, you'll realize why I just had to give it that kind of a sentence of a name. So let's let's start with this first point, though. We need to be filled. Verse, uh, in verse, I believe it's four, Paul describes the salvation that was brought to the church in Crete. And he talks about that we were saved, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of God's mercy. I think that's something that a lot of us can easily wrap our hands around. And if you haven't heard that before, that that's, that's really good news. We're saved by God, not because of any righteous thing we have done, are doing, or will ever do. We're saved because of his mercy. That's really great news. But the question is, how, does, how do we take the, the belief of that, and this is back to Brian's sermon, how do we take the belief of God's mercy and have it drive our behavior? This is where we get to the second portion of salvation that Paul talks about, this uh, rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes in, and it takes what's in our head about God's mercy, and it puts it in our hearts and lets it drive our devotion to him. This is what renews our hearts and allows us to live not just by rules, but in relationship with God the way that we were created to. So this gets us beyond head knowledge and makes it also heart knowledge. And I'm not saying either is better than the other. I think sometimes, you know, we we can downplay knowing the right things. No, we need to know what God's mercy is and that we're saved not because of things we've done, but because of what he's done. But that has to, uh, that belief has to then drive our behavior. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. I think a great description of this is in Ezekiel. If you just flip back in Ezekiel 36, this is a prophecy about what it would be like when people were filled with God's Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says this, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So without God's spirit in us, we're just people trying to follow rules. Now, some of us, and I even hear myself think this sometimes, you know, say things like, I don't know if I have the will to 
do X, Y, or Z. I don't know if I have the will to end that relationship. I don't know if I have the will to end that addiction. I don't know if I have the will to take that risk that I feel like God's calling me to. You know what's kind of scary about that, those statements? Is that you're probably right. You're probably like David in Psalm 51. Listen to what David says after he committed adultery and was crying out to God. He says this, Created me a pure heart, O God. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. Do not cast your presence from me or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And here it is. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So our our will to obey God is activated by having the Holy Spirit in us. What David's saying in Psalm 51 after he commits adultery is not, man, you know, I just need some accountability partners in my life or I just need like a a book on purity and read it and I can understand it and then we'll be done with this. No, he realizes that there's a will in him that needs to change and that change can only come about by having the Holy Spirit active and alive in him. So now for us, what does it look like? How do we get there? How do we get this Holy Spirit in us? This This is really cool. You know how it works? We can ask. We can ask God to put the Holy Spirit in us. Listen to Jesus in Luke 11, 11, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he had asked for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's great. We can ask God to put his spirit within us. Does anybody want to help demonstrate that principle today? I think I'm going to make it easier for you. I'm going to ask all of our faith group leaders, if you're leading a faith group, if you're interning in a faith group, I'm going to ask you to stand up right now. So there are different examples in the Bible of what it looks like when God's spirit is alive and active in somebody. One of them is in Acts 4.31. Listen to what this says. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Do any of you guys want that for your faith groups? Do you want that to be the reality? Okay, so we're going to do this right now. So if you are near a faith group leader, I want you to extend your hand or lay a hand on them, and we're going to pray that the reality of Acts 4.31 would become true and and would be real in their faith groups. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Just agree with me. Pray to yourself as well. Lord, we are asking as your sons and daughters, knowing that you're a good father and that you don't give us a snake or a stone, but you generously pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Fill these leaders right now with your Holy Spirit. Move them to obey your will in each of their groups and let them speak your word boldly as they're going out to to one another, Lord, to speak the truth and love, but also to our city. Fill them with your spirit, Lord. Let them obey your will and act in faith, Father. We are grateful for these leaders, for the role that they play in our church, and for the role that they see in your kingdom being established. Fill them with your spirit right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you're, you might be thinking, is that just for, is this Holy Spirit that I just described, is it just for people who are doing kind of churchy, leadershipy things? And the answer to that is no. So let's, let me give you another example. Exodus, this is the first person in the Bible who's described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, 
See, I have chosen Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. So if you're an artist, if you like to build things, I want you to stand up right now. If you are a creative person, if you're an architect, if you're a musician, we need you to stand. Some of you are getting a double dose. Tim's, this is the second time already. So Tim's, Tim's getting the double portion. So artists, you need the spirit of God to create excellent work. We're going to extend a hand. Same thing. So if you're near them, extend a hand, lay your hand on them. We're going to pray for them as well. Lord, thank you that you are Lord of all. You're Lord of all the art, all the music, all the creative designs, all the things that we build, and your excellence is seen by what is made. So we pray for your spirit to fill these men and these women and these children so that they can create excellent art, Lord, excellent buildings, excellent structures, excellent music that testifies to your glory. Fill them with your spirit. Remove from them the burden of having to create something that is worth worshiping because you are worth our worship and you are creating beautiful art through these men and through these women, Lord. Fill them with your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we got one more, one more group. Is anybody interested in seeing justice done in our society and in our world? Does anybody want to see racial injustice come to an end or economic injustice or um, human trafficking, the refugee crisis, right? We have lots of needs in our world now for God's justice to come. And this is very similar to what was happening in the book of Acts. In chapter 6, there was an injustice in the church. And they asked for a certain type of people to help oversee justice being done. And you know what kind of people they wanted? They wanted spirit-filled people. So if you are interested in justice in any way, shape, or form, uh, you want to see racial injustice come to an end or economic injustice, I'm going to ask you to stand now. If you're going to Cambodia or to um, Dusseldorf, you should probably be standing. (laughs) All right. A lot of people. So for this justice that we want to see in the world to happen, yes, we need to know policies. We need to know laws. I mean, if you are getting an MPH or one of those crazy degrees that I'm not going to get, um, we need to see, we need people with knowledge, right? But ultimately, God is a God of justice, and we need people who are filled with his spirit to see injustice ended in our world. Wow, most of you are standing. So if you're sitting, we really need you to participate. Um, extend your hand to just like everywhere, because almost everyone is standing. So now we're going to ask for the spirit to fill you all so that we can see justice done in our world. Jesus, there is such a need for your justice in this world, Lord. We repent for ways that we maybe have been um, tolerant or, Lord, not even aware of the injustice that's around us. And your spirit also is convicting us of ways that we can improve, ways that we have been in sin, Lord. So right now, would you fill us, would you fill me, everybody in this room with your spirit so that we can see justice done, so that we can be the unique craving and calling that people everywhere that are crying out against injustice are asking for, Lord. What is the answer to the refugee crisis? What is the answer to racism? What is the answer to the human trafficking that's going on in this world, Lord? We need people who are filled with your spirit, who can give the practicals as well as the foundational answer, Lord, that you and your gospel and your kingdom need to be established in this world. So fill us now, those who want to see justice done in the world. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Jesus' name, amen. All right. I am... 
know of a, a, a guy who's been doing work in this city for quite a while, and he goes around and does police youth intervention. And he, he prays every time he goes and just asks God for a word of knowledge and, and, and asks to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's uh, certainly an example in that area. Um, so we could have kept going. Uh, we could have just kept going about examples of people being filled with the Spirit of God and us asking for a Spirit to fill us. This is what I'm doing now before I go into meetings. I'm asking God, fill me with your Spirit. Give me wisdom. Give me knowledge. Give me understanding to show people software and to demonstrate its capabilities because God is Lord of all. Therefore, his Spirit is going to help us master and show his kingdom in all areas of our life. So we can ask for the Spirit for all different types of things. That's our, our first aspect of devoting ourselves to these good works that Paul is describing. We need to be filled with God's Spirit. Um, okay, point number two. We need to be focused. We need to be filled. We also need to be focused on who we are in Christ. This comes out in verses 9 through 11. Paul is describing these people in verses 9 through 11 who are all about controversies and genealogies and particulars about the Hebrew law. And he describes these people as warped and sinful and self-condemned. Now, why does he use that word self-condemned? Well, look at the way Paul describes himself in chapter 1. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm Paul, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's my identity. But these people in verses 9 through 11, their self or their sense of self was coming from these controversies, these particulars about the Hebrew law. See, when, when the grace of God is not driving our devotion to good works, we need something else to validate us and to make us feel unique or special. And for these people, it was, yes, we're all about Jesus, we're all about his grace, but also this particular Hebrew law, we need that too, right? So anytime we or somebody else, we position God's grace plus something else as being necessary, that plus something else, whatever it is, that is the idol in the situation. And in this case, it was genealogies and particulars about the Hebrew law, which people probably took a lot of pride in. Now for us, we might not know or have people that are really concerned about ancient genealogies or particulars about the Hebrew law, but it might be your denomination, or it might be, this is going to be really important in a couple, uh, few months, it might be your politics, right? It might be Jesus, but conservative, or Jesus and liberal, right? If we elevate those things to being necessary, and along with the grace of God, then we create an idol. Now, how do we know we've created an idol? Well, we see in the text that it was causing division within the church. So it's preventing us from obeying the greatest commandment of loving our neighbor as ourself. And this is when we get into this, yes, it's about Jesus, but also, and then whatever that but also is, whatever comes after that, that's your idol. Jesus had to deal with this in the book of Mark. Look in Mark 9, 38 through 40. He sees the, uh, the disciples see somebody driving out a demon in Jesus' name, but the person driving out that demon wasn't part of the original 12. So for the disciples, it was Jesus plus the original 12. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is in for us, um, against us is for us, right? So we can be confident that Jesus knows the heart. He knows the intention. We talked about that in the beginning. He knows who's honoring him with his lips and whose hearts are far from him. And when the grace of God is what drives our devotion to good works, we don't need to do anything better or more conservatively or more liberally or more exclusively than anybody else, right? That's the essence of pride. It's not about honoring and obeying the Lord. It's about honoring and obeying the Lord better 
or more exclusively or more conservatively or more orthodox than somebody else. But when God's grace is what drives our devotion to good works, we can be focused on who we are and who he created us to be. And we don't need anything else to affirm or to validate us. So let's go to our third and final point. We need to remember why we're doing good works in the first place. I really wish, like I said, be something. But for now, we need to remember why we're doing good works in the first place. I use this word remember because there comes a point where if you're filled with God's spirit and if you're focused on who you are in Christ, you'll probably see change in your life. You'll create excellent art. You'll lead an awesome faith group. Or you'll see yourself play a vital role in seeing justice established in the world, right? There's, there's a place where we see change and we want to see change and we want to see progress in our lives. But we have to remember what brought us from our former state into the state of progress that we're in now. This is exactly what Paul is doing. He says, at one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And then he uses, he kind of flips it. He uses this phrase, but, 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 but. And I'm going to tell you what he doesn't say after but. He doesn't say, but, you know, we just got tired of living in malice and envy. Got really old hating one another. Does anybody like hating people? Do you like being hated? Is that fun? Like, there's, there's clear, like, consequences to the way they were living here. But he doesn't say, you know, we just, we got that good book on purity. We got that accountability in place. We got those tangible kind of practical things. And that's what turned it around. He's calling them to remember what brought them from their former state. And he says, but when the love and kindness and grace of God, our Savior, appeared. And he talks about his mercy, God's mercy. He talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, we have to remember, as we're making progress, what actually is making progress in our life, what is helping us make that progress. It's not our practical things. It's not our own will. It's not our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not our wisdom. It is the love and kindness of God, our Savior, his mercy and his Holy Spirit moving us to obey him and his laws and his commands. So for, for the people of Crete, um, you know, when they don't remember what brought them out of their former state, what might it look like if they go back to that former state? Well, it might be pretty obvious. Like if you're hating someone and you've forgotten the grace of God and you go back to that, it's, it's fairly obvious, right? The, the, the sign of not making progress here is, can be seen on the surface. But, what it also might look like when we forget what brought us to where we are in the first place, it might be a little more subtle. It might be like me at Brighton Blitz a few weeks ago. Brighton Blitz was awesome. Thank you, Jacqueline, for planning that. Thank you for the hundred of people, hundreds of, hundred plus, right? Not hundreds, hundred plus of people from our church who showed up and, and supported. It was, a, it was a really impactful outreach to our community. Yeah. So there was one night on Wednesday I was participating in Brighton Blitz, and this, this particular night we were going out and just handing out flyers, we were knocking on doors, we were inviting people to church, asking to pray for people, and I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty introverted person, so doing that type of stuff for me is, is a stretch, to be honest with you. I don't know if I have the will to do that all the time. And the person I went out with, you know, we, were, we had our flyers, we were hitting the streets, we were going for it. And we got through about three or four houses 
And honestly, I was losing steam pretty fast. Um, the interactions were awkward. People didn't want to come to church. People didn't want to talk to us. And for someone who's introverted and like is really stretching themselves, that can, that can take the wind out of your sails pretty quickly. So after we got through, I think, the fourth house, I mean, it was kind of more of the same, right? The lady just didn't want to hear it. The person I was with, I said, okay, can, can we just stop for a second? And I asked him to stop because, honestly, I was thinking about going home. Um, I didn't live far from where we, do, where, we were, where we were doing outreach, and so I was like, man, if I just, like, make a couple lefts, I can just, <laughs> just go home and no one's going to know. But I said, let's, let's stop and let's just pray for a second. And I don't really remember what I prayed and what the person I was with prayed. It was probably just 30 seconds. I just thanked God for his grace. I was kind of just, you know, praying one of those generic prayers that you pray when you're desperate. And um, I remembered in that moment that it wasn't about my will. It wasn't about me mustering up the strength to be out there. And I think in that moment, God's spirit filled me afresh, and I was moved to obey what I needed to obey. And outreach after that was a lot more joyful. Now, was it joyful because lots of people came to church and there was a revival and tons of people came to faith and I had these cool stories to share? No, not this time. It was pretty much more the same. It was awkward. It was hard. You know, who likes? It's 8 p.m. and who doesn't expect a large black man at their door at 8 (laughs) p.m. on a weeknight? So it was awkward, right? But when the grace of God is what drives our devotion to good works. We don't need results to validate us. I think that's significant. When the grace of God drives our devotion to good works, we don't need results to validate us. You know, I, it, it's that Jesus plus formula. It's, yeah, Jesus and his grace, plus results and testimonies that I can share so I can feel validated. We don't need that when we're about the grace of God. So, In conclusion, the three things that we need to devote ourselves to good works the way that Paul is describing here. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be moved to obey and walk in relationship with God. We need to be focused on our identity in Christ and not on secondary things. And then lastly, we need to remember why we're doing good works in the first place. I'm going to think of something that starts with B in the letter F. So if this is the case, if this is true, if the grace of God is really what drives our devotion to good works, I think the question that gets at the heart of this matter for us and for us to think about this week is how is this going to change how we pray for people? If it really is about his grace and and his work and his Holy Spirit coming alive inside of us, our situations and our results and our certain things going the way we think they should, is it really that important? In some sense, it is. Um, you know, we're, we're commanded and, and we can lay our petitions before God and, and all of that. But if you look at the prayers in the New Testament, if you look at the prayers of Paul and even some of the prayers of Jesus, there's this priority, there's this perspective, like we were talking about, there's this perspective on people encountering the love and grace of God. And you can just hear the depths in which they describe this love and grace that God had for us. And that's what they pray for people. And and certainly they do at times ask for results, but there's priority given to God's love and God's grace and the height and the width and the depth and all types of things about God's grace. So in conclusion, I'm actually going to, for a response time, I want some of our leaders to come 
and just pray those prayers over you. The band, uh, if you could, come back up too as well. Let's stand as a congregation. So the verses that they're going to pray are going to be on the screen here, so you'll see um, what exactly we're praying over you. And I would just challenge you this week to pray these verses. Pray them for your friends. Pray them for your family. Those people that are like, you're a Christian? Like, you know, what's really going to change those people? Is it going to be some really well-articulated argument? Is it going to be, you know, some really perfect church service or some great article you share with them? At its core, no. It's going to be the love and the grace of God and the kindness of God that appears to him. That same love and grace and kindness that appeared to me during Brighton Blitz, again, reminding me of what had brought me from point A to point B. So some of our leaders are going to come up right now. We're going to pray these verses over you. And again, I would take them, write them down. I'm, I'm challenging myself this week to memorize those verses as well. And let's see what happens when God's love and grace encounters us afresh and encounters our city afresh because it is his grace that drives our devotion to good works.